Itch, itch, itch. Scratch, scratch, scratch. In from 10 to 48 hours, Wheaton's ointment cures the itch. Wheaton's ointment cures salt room. Wheaton's ointment cures tetter. Wheaton's ointment cures barber's itch. Wheaton's ointment cures old sores. Wheaton's ointment cures every kind of humor-like magic. Price, 50 cents a box. By mail, 60 cents. Address Weeks and Potter, number 170 Washington Street, Boston, Massachusetts. For sale by all druggists. I believe there with the greatest of A daring young man on the side Hi there. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 6. That ad you heard at the top for Wheaton's ointment had a word that I had never seen before, barber's itch. At first I was reading it as barbersitch, sort of like the word bandersnatch, and I was thinking it was some exotic old-time disease. Then I looked up that word barbersitch on Fulton History and found nothing but a few of these specific ads for this ointment. So then I did some Googling, and the malady barber's itch was actually bumpy skin, as in barber's itch. I think what happened here is that the seller submitted this advertisement, and the printer misread it in the same way that I did, and thus was propagated this typo of barber's itch, instead of barber's itch. What's that you say? Not interested in 19th century typesetting errors? I'm afraid you've come to the wrong shop, my friend. So, last episode we left off amid a stream of screeds in the Syracuse, New York Daily Journal directed at John A. Green, the most notorious copperhead, or northern sympathizer for the South, in Syracuse. It's February 15th, three days before the local elections, and if these newspapers are any indication, tensions are running high. Of course, that's exacerbated by the national political situation which I detailed in the previous episode. Suffice it to say that we're a couple of weeks from the first American presidential impeachment, and you can see the political polarization woven into every article in the newspapers. So people are seeing this election as a manifestation of national concerns. A little background information before we continue. John A. Green made his money as a grocery wholesaler. There's an article in here that coyly mentions a J and G, and that refers to J. Cox and Green, that grocery company. Green is also the driving force behind the Syracuse Daily Courier, the Democratic newspaper. As in the last episode, there are a couple of references to Vallandigham. 
Going over to Wikipedia for a second, Clement Vallandigham was an Ohio politician and leader of the Copperhead faction of anti-war Democrats during the American Civil War. He served two terms in the United States House of Representatives. In 1863, he was convicted at an army court-martial of opposing the war and exiled to the Confederacy. He ran for governor of Ohio in 1863 from exile in Canada, but was defeated. So basically, the name Vallandigham was synonymous with Copperhead. At one point, the courier makes a reference to Lincoln's quotas and to people having others go to war for them. At several points during the war, Lincoln did institute a draft, and one option was to pay a substitute to go for you if you were drafted. So both of these things did happen. As always, you can find links to this information, along with images of all the articles I read in the episode, by following the link in the show notes. Anyway, let's get back to it. This is the journal turning up the heat on John A. Green. A Contrast of Records Charles Andrews versus John A. Green, Jr. Comparison of the utterances of a loyal man with those of a disloyal man. Read this sample of John A. Green's anti-war record. On the 16th of April, 1861, John A. Green, Jr. telegraphed to the Associated Press as follows. The Herald's Albany Dispatch of yesterday, stating that Mr. John A. Green, Jr. would call a convention to support Mr. Lincoln's administration, the president just then having issued his first call for 75,000 troops, is entirely erroneous. That gentleman, John A. Green, Jr., openly and boldly favors the recognition of the Confederate States of America. On the 19th of April, three days later, the notorious rebel organ, The New York News, edited by the infamous Ben Wood, published an address by John A. Green, Jr., in which he set forth that he sought the cooperation of certain Democrats whose sympathies were not with the Union cause, and added that he, John A. Green, Jr., demanded the recognition of the independence of the Southern Confederacy. Subsequently, John A. Green, Jr. issued an address in which he reiterated his rebel-sympathizing views, and among other things, equally odious and repulsive to loyal men, were the following. This accursed fraternal contest, into which Mr. Lincoln has hastened us, in contempt of the Constitution he had just sworn to support, is the long-foreseen result of the wicked and persistent assaults made by the party which now holds power in these northern states, upon the rights and property of their fellow citizens of the South. The more popular the war today, the more odious and repulsive will it appear hereafter. Convinced of the wrongfulness, injustice, and inexpediency of this most causeless and unauthorized war thus forced upon us, convinced by passing events that the policy has been promotive of disunion, I have been led to believe that the true union men are not those who threaten devastation and slaughter, but they who invoke the persuasive influence and power of peace." From that time to the close of the war, John A. Green's record was of the same character. He never, by word or deed, gave the slightest encouragement to the Union cause or to its defenders. 
He has never uttered a sentiment that could be construed into love of country or appreciation of the services of its loyal heroes in preserving it. He has had honeyed words for traitors and rebels and their sympathizers only. His utterances and actions have been distasteful and odious to the feelings of loyal men of all political parties, and he has had no sympathy with or for any but the most subservient devotees to the rebellious, slave-holding oligarchy of the South. Is it possible that any loyal elector, any war Democrat, of whom there are many in the Democratic Party, can give consent to his elevation to the first place in the gift of the people of the city of Syracuse? Now look at this record, that of a loyal man. On the 22nd of April, 1861, there was held in Whiting Hall one of the greatest public meetings that has taken place in the whole history of Syracuse. There was an immense gathering of citizens, strong and earnest speeches were made, truly loyal and patriotic resolutions passed. The vast audience took a solemn oath to support the Constitution and government of the United States and to maintain them, if necessary, with their lives and $20,000 were voted for the support of the families of volunteers. Charles Andrews, then mayor of the city, presided, assisted by a large number of vice presidents and secretaries, among whom were Moses D. Burnett, James Lynch, David S. Gear, James P. Haskin, Charles F. Williston, John W. Barker, Louis H. Redfield, Harlow W. Chittenden, Daniel O. Salmon, John B. Burnett, and other prominent gentlemen of both political parties. Colonel Silas Titus and Major M. D. Burnett were among the speakers. While John A. Green was telegraphing to the country that he openly and boldly favored the recognition of the Confederate States, Charles Andrews put himself on the record in the following language, constituting his earnest, truthful, and patriotic address on taking the chair at the public meeting to which we have called attention. He spoke with burning eloquence and prophetic forecast as follows. Remarks of Mayor Andrews This large concourse, fellow citizens, demonstrates that an extraordinary occasion has called you together, and indeed, today we stand face to face with great events. The government, which for 80 years has protected us, which has carried our people to the highest point of national prosperity, around which clustered so many glorious recollections, is assailed by traitors who are striking at its very existence. The Constitution is sought to be subverted. Our forts and our ships are fired upon and taken. Public property is plundered. Legalized piracy is to assail our commerce. And today the national capital is menaced by armed forces who are seeking to take and to destroy it. Traitors in the cabinet and in the field have struck hands with the conspirators to overthrow the fairest fabric of government which the world has ever known. At such a time, fellow citizens, you are called upon to testify your loyalty to the government, your devotion to the union of these states. And shall American citizens hesitate to sustain the government in this hour of its trial? Shall we now desert the flag which has protected us, or leave the ship which has carried us thus far so safely? Already thousands of patriotic citizens have heard the note of alarm, and are buckling on their armor for the conflict. This question, fellow citizens, belongs to no party, to no section. 
No matter what the origin of these difficulties, no matter whether concessions might have obviated them, we are today confronted by several of the states in armed and open rebellion against the authority of the government. It is no time to justify, to palliate, to excuse. The blow is aimed at the very life of the nation. Other battlefields than those of the revolution may run red with patriots' blood, but in the end, as God is great, the government shall be sustained. And if, perchance, in defending ourselves, others shall rise to the condition of free men, we shall have no reason to regret. Whether or not the Confederate states shall return to their allegiance to the general government, we are impelled by every consideration of honor and safety to demonstrate by a vigorous and successful prosecution of this war our right to recognition as one of the powers of the earth. In this contest, fellow citizens, we shall have the sympathies of the civilized world. The pretexts for this rebellion are utterly baseless. The forbearance of the government has been carried beyond the point of safety. The South, instead of seeking redress through the forms of the Constitution, have chosen to submit their grievances to the arbitrament of the sword. May God defend the right. But at this juncture, fellow citizens, patriotism and loyalty must be more than a sentiment. If this government of our fathers is worth preserving, it is worth the sacrifice of the means and, if need be, to the lives of our citizens. This week go forth from our midst a body of young men, fired by noble enthusiasm, to sustain their country's honor and their country's flag. Others shall follow them. They go forth, it may be, to death. If so, I doubt not, to honorable graves. Let them go, sustained not only by our prayers and our sympathies, but by our substantial aid. They leave behind them families and friends whom they love as we do our own. Let measures be initiated tonight to sustain our soldiers who fight our battles and those who are dependent upon them. And the ladies, God bless them, ever ready in every good work, give their aid and sympathy. I take the liberty of reading a communication signed by very many of the ladies of the city, tendering their services to this great cause. After reading it, I shall detain you no longer from the regular business of the meeting. These are the utterances of a noble, devoted, patriotic citizen. He has many times since spoken to his fellow citizens on the great subjects that have engrossed public attention. His words have always been those of patriotism and devotion to country. His voice has given forth no uncertain sound. The keynote to his action was sounded in the plain, manly, and patriotic language we have quoted. The Duty of Voters We ask the electors of Syracuse to compare the political records of Charles Andrews and John A. Green, Jr. These records, of which we have merely presented a key, and from which we might readily fill our columns, are known to every resident of Syracuse. Let each voter judge for himself what is his duty in choosing between these two men. Electors, answer to your consciences and your judgments whether it is not your bounden duty to give your suffrage to Charles Andrews, the true man and unyielding patriot, in preferences to John A. Green, Jr., the sympathizer with and aider and abettor of rebellion and treason. John A. Green, Jr., a brief review of his anti-war record. He openly and boldly favors recognition of the Southern Confederacy, 
his service in the peace wing of the Confederate Army. When all the people of the North were for the country, John A. Green, Jr. was for the rebels. John A. Green's record during the rebellion is so well known that it may seem a work of supererogation to reproduce any part of it. But, nevertheless, it is a duty we owe the public, and therefore we discharge it. We do not enter fully into the subject, for the material at hand would fill pages of this journal. We merely present samples of what he is held accountable for during the life-and-death struggle from which the nation is now emerging. How he received the President's first call for troops. President Lincoln issued his first proclamation calling for 75,000 troops on the 14th of April, 1861, and it was published to the country on the next day. Everybody remembers the popular feeling that was aroused, and that hardly a man so bad and so bold as to array himself against the cause of the nation was to be met with here. But there were a few who were rebels and traitors by nature and association. On the day after the President's proclamation had called the country to arms as it were, the telegraph dispatches to the Associated Press contained one from this city, written by Green's own hand and forwarded by his pliant tool, Halstead, of the Courier and Union. This dispatch was in the following language, as we take it from the Albany Argus of April 17, 1861. The Democracy of Syracuse on the Crisis Syracuse, April 16, 1861. There is great diversity of opinion among the people here in regard to their support of President Lincoln's war policy. The Democrats, without regard to past divisions, are seen congregated on the corners of the streets and are generally unanimous in condemnation of the policy of the administration. Resistance to coercion or civil war, except strictly in defense, is the prevailing sentiment. A large portion of them consider the true policy of the government to be the recognition of the Confederate States of America rather than civil war. The Herald's Albany Dispatch of yesterday, stating that Mr. John A. Green, Jr. would call a convention to support Mr. Lincoln's administration, is entirely erroneous. That gentleman, John A. Green, Jr., openly and boldly favors the recognition of the Confederate States of America. The Courier, John A. Green's paper, takes strong grounds against the war policy of the administration and charges the Republican Party with breaking up the American Union of States. This was John A. Green's response to the first gun fired by the rebels upon Fort Sumter. It was a surrender of the contest. He then went over to the rebels, in heart and spirit at least, and remained there during the continuance of the war. He openly and boldly favored the recognition of the Confederate States of America. Corroboration of Green's Southern Sympathies by a Rebel Paper A few days after the publication of the above remarkable dispatch, we find full corroboration of these sentiments of Green's in the Mobile, Alabama, News. We copy from that paper of May 21, 1861. Some Southern Sympathizers at the North We have been handed the following extract from a letter just received by a young gentleman in this city from his sister residing in Syracuse, New York. It gives an inkling of the prevalent feeling at the North, and also shows that there are men there who refuse to bow the knee to the abolition band. 
The firm alluded to are extensive wholesale dealers occupying a building five stories high. We omit the names, which are in full, and give the initials. You speak of the war. It is the all-engrossing topic here. Now the firm of J and G are called traitors because they sympathize with the South. At one time they were notified that if the stars and stripes were not seen floating from the windows within two days, the store would be demolished. On going to the store the next morning, my husband saw the flag flying from one of the upper windows. It was not known who placed it there. It was immediately taken down, and the store still stands, and we are all alive. Mr. G's life has been threatened a number of times. There are only about 200 men here who belong to that side, and they dare not speak their minds. Nearly every house on the street has a flag floating from some part of it, and in the event of a war I know not what will become of us, for my husband will not put out the flag. These views and opinions of the grocery firm, of which Green is the political head, were known here, and he was looked upon by all friends of the Union cause as an open and undisguised enemy of the country. The Peace Movement The Great Green Vallandigham Peace Meeting John A. Green, Jr., was a leading apostle of peace when that dodge was serviceable as an auxiliary to the rebel cause. He was cheek by jowl with Vallandigham, Wood, Sanders, Brick Pomeroy, Dr. Olds, and the rest of the peace wing of the Secession Army. He was the originator and promoter of the great peace convention held in this city August 18, 1864. We quote from the newspaper owned and controlled by him, the Syracuse Courier and Union of the next morning. The peace convention, which has been anticipated with so much interest by the conservative masses, met yesterday and has more than realized the hopes of the democracy. No larger assemblage has ever been brought together, none representing more intelligence and patriotism. The masses, tired of this bloody and ruinous civil war, poured in from all directions, anxious to give expression to the one prevailing desire for peace. All other questions were forgotten and ignored. The presence of the distinguished exile, Clement L. Vallandigham, of ex-Governor Weller of California and of the Honorable Fernando Wood, the famous ex-mayor of New York City, lent additional attractions to the occasion. As the procession took up its line of march, the following mottos were displayed, led by a peace banner, inscribed, Let there be no strife between mine and thine, for we are brothers. Blessed are the peacemakers, on earth peace and goodwill toward men. War is disunion. Inevitable and final peace is union. Usurpation unrebuked, despotism accepted. Lincoln has filled the land with graves, widows, orphans, and cripples. Resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. The people are sovereign. We will not be conscripted in a war for the extermination of slavery. Peace, our only hope. Massachusetts philanthropy, forcing Negroes from comfortable homes to slaughter pens. No more victims for the slaughter pens. Not a man, not a dollar. What we demand, an armistice, a convention of states and the union of our fathers. The people are ready to take vengeance on the advocates of civil war. 
Republican congressmen indict A. Lincoln for perjury and usurpation. Lincoln and Seward should leave the country for their country's good. Lincoln has murdered three white men to free one Negro. Not satisfied, he calls for 500,000 more. Humanity commands this butchery shall cease. While Lincoln jokes, the nation bleeds. Provost marshals, beware. In peace, the people prosper. In war, tyrants usurp power. Free ballots or free bullets crush the tyrant Lincoln before he crushes you. Compromise, reconciliation. Lincoln's greatest generals, general conscription and general starvation. Peace will give us bread. The proceedings of the meeting were conducted according to Green's program. He superintended the meeting in person. The whole affair was carried out in the spirit of the sentiments we have quoted. Addresses were made by Clement L. Vallandigham and Fernando Wood, both taking ultra-grounds in favor of stopping the war, conceding everything demanded by the rebels, even to the dismemberment of the Union, whilst the administration and its policy were assailed in terms of violence and abuse only limited by the power of the English language to express the passions of hatred and revenge. It was a device to render aid and comfort to the rebels in arms, and John A. Green, Jr. was the life and soul of the movement. Further aid and comfort to the rebels. What a venal press did under Green's orders. The Courier and Union owned by John A. Green and edited by his tools, was for four years daily filled with editorials, either written by Green's pen or dictated by his voice, which enforced his views, openly and boldly favoring the recognition of the Southern Confederacy, declaring the war a failure, and demanding an immediate and unconditional peace. We might fill a hundred columns with this matter, every line of which would indict John A. Green for disloyalty to his country, for sympathy with its avowed enemies, and for encouraging, aiding, and abetting the rebels and traitors. We reproduce a couple of extracts from the Courier and Union to show the character of the editorial articles with which John A. Green's organ was daily filled during the war, Commenting on President Lincoln's call for half a million men, the Courier and Union of August 23, 1861, said, What would you do? The Republicans ask us, What would you do if you were restored to power? We answer in a few words. We would stop this infamous war, and thus arrest the nation in its downward career to destruction and woe. Within 30 days after a Democrat is inaugurated president, this war will stop. What then would follow and how the troubles would be settled, no one can now tell. But that they would be settled, all know. And that the Union would be restored under the Constitution of our fathers, all Democrats hope and believe. Yes, but 500 thousand more victims must be laid upon the altar from which a river of blood has been flowing the past three years. This stream of human gore seems to have become the pride of the land, for the high priest who officiates at the crimson altar has but to express his fears that the sources of supply are becoming exhausted, to cause the people to rally and send forth from among them such victims as can be bought at the lowest rates. 
Thus the stream is kept full, the crimson tide continues to roll through the land, and 500,000 fresh victims will keep its ranks full for some time to come. Then rally, rally, ye loyal men, and all ye worshippers of the sacred stream, and send from among your neighbors and the strangers who dwell around you the quotas which should be filled by yourselves and your sons. Again we say, rally, send us your victims. The sacrificial knives of the priest are thirsting for the slaughter, and the carnival of death must go on, because Father Abraham wills it. Again, the Courier and Union of September 12, 1864, contained the following. Thanksgiving for bloodshed. In accordance with another of the smutty old joker's proclamations, the churches were called upon yesterday to offer thanksgiving to Almighty God for the recent bloodshed at Atlanta and the other advantages gained over the rebels in the prosecution of this nigger war, whereby white men are slain by thousands so as to make Sambo equal to them. We have reason to thank God that there are at least two denominations in our country that do not desecrate God's holy ordinances by giving thanks for wholesale murder. The Methodist churches, the Unitarian, and a few others of that stripe may make their pulpits ring with their thanksgiving for bloodshed, but they only follow the commands of a smutty joker and irreverent blasphemer who happens temporarily to preside in the executive chair of the nation, instead of he who is the supreme ruler of the universe and the prince of peace. At the First Methodist Church, the political mountebank and war screecher the very Christian and reverend gentleman, all the way from California, who is known hereabouts as the most irreverent of the dissenters who presume to follow the meek and lowly one that ever disgraced a white choker, held forth before a slim audience. Something they call Vesper service was held at the Reverend Mr. May's church in the evening to offer thanks over the sacrifice of so many lives. We doubt not that had the death of General Morgan, the intrepid but misled Kentucky chieftain, been known in Washington when Thanksgiving was ordered, that fact would have been specifically recommended and duly honored in the churches yesterday. What sort of religion is this that gloats over the bloody deeds in a nation's history, that which rejoices in the slaying of brethren of a common people, it is of a devilish nature, and born of intolerance, fanaticism, and the counsel of fiends. Do we see the Southerners, rebels as they are, indulging in this sort of religious initiation, which is born of hell? These are samples that chance to be at hand. The files of the Courier and Union contain column upon column of even more seditious and inflammatory matter in a similar vein. These declarations by John A. Green, Jr. are fair average expressions of his views and policy during the war. They constitute his platform of political principles. He asks the people of the hitherto loyal and patriotic city of Syracuse to endorse his unpatriotic and traitorous conduct by electing him their mayor. They will not do it, for their honor, loyalty, and patriotism forbid. They will signally rebuke him for his infamous political conduct and consign him to a merited political oblivion.
Well, we've finally finished the journal's comments on John A. Green for February 15th. Next time, we'll see what the other Republican newspaper, The Standard, has to say, and then we'll start getting into what The Courier has to say in defense of its candidate. Thanks for listening, and until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love, he's stolen away.